The many-splendored wisdom of God is what we've been studying in Ephesians 1 to 5. And to, uh, as I showed you the other day, when you get off the train in modern Ephesus, which is called Seljuk, you run it, you immediately see the, Roma, the, the um, ruins of the ancient Roman aqueduct. Um, unit, we're in unit three, the glory of the many-splendored wisdom of God, which is chapter three. In chapter one, you remember Paul gave great thanksgiving for every spiritual blessing that is ours in Christ as, as we participate in God's many-splendored plan for the redemption of the cosmos, which is, finds its fulfillment and everything being brought together in whom? In Christ Jesus. Um, and um, then he prays for spiritual wisdom that, that, that they will be able to grasp and understand this in the last part of chapter one. This was unit one. He prays that they will know the hope of God's calling, that, um, uh, that they, which they will know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and will know the exceeding greatness of his power which is at work in them, which of course is the power that raised Christ from the dead, seated him at the right hand of the throne of God far above every power in the universe the age, past age, or the age to come, everyone you can imagine, Christ is, is supreme in triumph. All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto him. He moved from that then to their own experience. He said, and you have experienced this power because you were dead in trespasses and sins. And you were made alive with Christ. He went to the cross and he is raised and you've been cleansed by his blood. You've been transformed. You've been redeemed by his blood. Your transgressions have been removed and you have been made alive with him and you have been seated with him in the heavenly dimension, in the presence of God. That's where you live. You don't live according to, the, to this age, to the, to the course of this world. You don't live under the prince of the power of the, of the air, the spirit at work in the children of disobedience who permeates this world. That's not, you have to live here, but you're not living in that dimension. You are living in the heavenly places, in God's presence, and you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, and Christ is formed within you. Then he goes on to say, and not only were you dead and alive, but you were alienated. This is the last part of chapter two. You were alienated from, from God. You were the nations. You were not part of the people of God of Israel. You were alienated. You were part of the nations. What we call the Gentiles, but I'm using the word the nations. That's where you were. You didn't have any share in, in um, the commonwealth of Israel, the fellowship of the people of God. You were alienated from them. You, you uh, were strangers to all of God's covenants of promise in the Old Testament of, of what he was going to do. Therefore, since you did not know God's promise, you were... Um, Without, you, have, you had no hope, and that, that's bad enough. But the last word in is you were without God in the cosmos, in the universe. You were alone and alienated. But now, in Jesus Christ, you who were far off have been made near. You've been made part of the body of Christ. You've been made near. He is our peace. He brings us in reconciliation to God and to one another in the body of Christ in that word peace, which means so much more than just calmness of spirit, which is a wholeness of well-being and fellowship with God in the body of Christ. Because you have been reconciled through him. You, uh, he's killed, the, he's brought you to, uh, Jew and Gentile together in the people of God. And through him, you have uh, access in one spirit to God because he's killed the enmity with his cross. In one, no, you're in, you've been joined in one body 
having, having uh, the body of Christ, of course. He's killed the enmity that, that separated you from the people of God and you from God by his cross. And you've been reconciled to God. You have access to God in one spirit, the Holy Spirit, right to the Father. You are, in fact, the temple of the, uh, being built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets as the temple, a holy temple, a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You have experienced this. Then Paul moves in the beginning of chapter 3 to say, now let me tell you what you've experienced, you nations, what you've experienced in being brought near by the body of Christ, what, 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 what you've experienced. Now let me tell you about it. You are participating in God's grand scheme for the redemption of the world because this is what it is. It's, he begins to tell you it is that the nations of the world are fellow heirs and, f and f one body and partakers of the promises of God to his people in the Lord Jesus Christ, in Christ, by the, through the proclamation of the gospel. And Paul says, and that's what God's, he's taken me, he's made me the one, he's made me the flagship. He's made me the one to make this point clear. He's given me this commission to preach to the nations and I love this phrase, the inexhaustible riches of Christ that I've been telling you about, to bring us, to bring them all together in Christ. Now Paul then, he's, so now he, he comes this today, it's only seven verses. Oops, my iPad keeps going off here. I have to do something about that. I just have to keep turning it back on. Now today, oh, I Paul discusses the many splendored wisdom of God. I've used the library at Ephesus since we haven't been using the overhead. I haven't been talking about the pictures. That was the library that stored 12,000 scrolls. Celsius's library used that sort of to symbolize the many splendored wisdom of God. That was yesterday. Here, Paul discusses the many, explains the many splendored wisdom of God. But today, in, in 3, 14 through 21, Paul prays that his hearers will participate in the many splendored wisdom of God. This, friends, is the culmination and climax of the first three chapters. In chapter four, Paul begins to tell us how to live in light of our participation in the many splendored wisdom of God. And uh, Reverend John, Brother John referred to this passage the other night very appropriately um, when he was talking about the flow through, because it's about the flow through, God flowing through us. But this is, this is the climax. Paul is reaching the, the, the pen, he's finished his teaching, and there's nothing now to do but to pray that, they, that God will enable them to participate in this fully. That's where, that's where he climaxes, crying out to God. So we have Paul prays for his hearers there, here, that they will participate fully in the many splendored wisdom of God. Let's look at the text. It's only seven verses, but it's compact and rich and full. Verse one. For this cause, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for, for the sake of you, you nations. No, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong verse. That's chapter three, verse one. That's not where I want to be. That didn't sound right. Verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees uh, to the Father, to the Father from whom 
Every fatherhood, every father's house, various ways to translate this, in heaven and on earth is named. Paul begins his prayer for this reason. What is he referring to? Well, in one sense, everything he said. All that he said about the many splendored wisdom of God. All the great privileges that are ours in Christ Jesus. Most directly, of course, he's described that plan in the previous verses for this reason. Because in Christ Jesus, the, uh, the, in Christ Jesus, you, the nations, have become fellow heirs and in one body and partakers of the promise of this glorious plan that includes you for this reason and for all of God's great goodness that he has done in, in, in bringing this plan of salvation. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, Jews normally stood to pray. We kneel at an altar, but they normally stood to pray. They could kneel. But the kneeling shows the intensity of the prayer here. Paul doesn't just say, I pray. He says, I bow my knees. I fall down before him. I'm pouring out my whole heart. This is my, this is my grand desire and my passion before God. For this reason, for all of this, for God's great plan of salvation that includes the nations in Christ and all the blessings that come from it, I bow my knees before the Father. And then we have this rather enigmatic statement, from whom every, and they don't know how to translate it, every family, the ESV says. I've said every father's house in heaven and on earth derives its name. It will help you a little bit here to refer actually to the Greek words. Of course, the Greek word for father is pater, pater and the word here for father's house is patria. Um, and the, the way it's formed here, I, I bow my knees to the father, that's I bow my knees to patera, from whom every patria in heaven and earth is named. So the very word comes from, comes from and is related to the word for father. And, you know, um, does it mean every family? Probably. Every clan? Yes, maybe. But there's several things here. First of all, it means that it helps us to understand that God doesn't just use fatherhood as an analogy for God, that fatherhood begins with God. And human fatherhood is a reflection of God's, is to be a reflection of God's fatherhood. And every fatherhood, you might say, in the world, every father in their family, every fatherhood in the world derives its name from him. There is a sense in which, well, of course, he is especially the father of, the, of those who believe through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has become our Father through him. There's a special sense which we are the children of God. The people in the world are not the children of God in that sense. But this would tell us there is a sense in which God claims all the people of the world. All the nations of the world, every patria, every clan, every father's house in the world, in one sense, he, he is the universal God and the creator of all. And he reaches out to all of them universally. But he is the great father then, to put it colloquially, the, the big daddy of them all, that's very colloquial. Lord, don't take that as disrespectful. I didn't mean it that way. I bow my knee to him who is the Father. And here's what Paul, um, Paul then prays. Look at the concerns for which Paul prays. He, he prays as he begins to address his concerns. He says, according to the riches, not this time of... Paul likes to use this word riches. We had the riches of his grace and and the, the inexplicable riches of Christ trying to explain to help us understand the abundance of who God is. According to the riches now, he says, of, of what? 
of his glory. You know, if you're working in development for an institution, you don't ask a multimillionaire for a gift of $1,000. It's an insult. To go ask somebody who could give you $50,000 for $1,000, you don't do that. It would be insulting to him. Now, God, of course, God, of course, receives our smallest request. I don't mean we can't bring our small cons concerns to him, but Paul is coming to him to ask him to respond according to the riches of the glory of the person. The glory of God is the revelation of God, the per person of God, the majesty of God, all of that is, is encompassed in the word glory. To respond in light of who he is, of the, of the riches of his glory, to abundantly pour them out on us. And how is... How, how is um, and what does he ask for then according to the riches of his glory? What's the first thing he asks for? Strength. Strength and power, but it's the empowering spirit. It is the spirit of God that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. It is for the God's spirit is God present in us. I could not agree more, if, if you could agree more than 100%, I would agree more than 100% with what Brother John was preaching the other night about it's not God's gifts, it's God himself. I wouldn't want it to be any other way. How, how vacuous, how empty it would be if God just gave us his gifts and not himself. So that he would grant you according to the riches of his grace to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. The Holy Spirit is the mark of the, the presence of the Holy Spirit is the mark of the Christian. Now, Christ is present through the Holy Spirit. We have access to the Father through the Holy Spirit. I don't ever want to separate the work of the Holy Spirit from the work of Christ, and you'll see Paul doesn't do that here either. But the Holy Spirit is God present among us. Um, Martin and I were talking the other day, yesterday, and it was like, you know, the Holy Spirit is like God right here. It's, it's, this is one reason why throughout the Scripture, the Holy Spirit is spoken of with such reverence, why we have the, the sin against the Holy Spirit in the Gospels, why the writer of Hebrews can talk about uh, the epitome of apostasy is to insult the Spirit of grace. It's because He is the Spirit of grace. He is God present, God bringing His grace and His strength into our lives. And so, to, to insult the Holy Spirit, it's like getting in God's face, because he is right there. It's like saying the work of God is not the work of God. He's so precious, and it's God present to us. So Paul begins there, that we might be strengthened in the inner person by his, his spirit. Have you ever felt weak in your inner person? Oh, my, I have. There are times when I have no resource, I've had no resource within. Some of us, through the experiences we've had in life, that's, that, we may have that kind of sense of powerlessness often. It may be deep-seated. We had a testimony of prayer today about, about depression. She, she said it was hard for her to stand up here because she had the idea that everybody who stood up here was almost perfect. <laughs> 
Without the presence of God's Spirit and His inner strength, I would be very weak. I would be nothing. But strengthen, not without here, but in the inner person with the Spirit. Strengthen now, not just to do anything, but to strengthen, be strengthened to live for God. Be strengthened to live for Christ. Be strengthened to be what God wants me to be in that very inner person. You know, it's very interesting. There are all kinds of words Paul could have used. He could have said heart. He could have said a lot of things. But he used specifically here to get the point across in your, your inner person. Be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. God present there, giving you the power to, to participate, to have the strength to participate in this, these inexhaustible riches of Christ. We think that bodily, a bodily strength or beauty and outward skill, etc., as the real and important things. But it is truly the essential you that is crucial. And it is who you are within. And so Paul does not pray that I will be smart, though, of course, intelligence, God will use your intelligence, or that these people will be beautiful, or they will have great skill or great gifts here. His prayer is that they will be strengthened within by the Holy Spirit. Um, Tom Oden is a well-known, he's passed away now, but he was a well-known theologian, very influential in the, the Wesleyan movement. Uh, he, when he entered the ministry of the United Methodist Church, he didn't believe anything. He saw the church as a means of social change. It's a whole story of how he truly came to Christ. But initially, his faith was in psychotherapy. That's how, that's how things were going to be changed and the world was going to be made better. And then he read, the, this, this, he read statistics that people who had psychotherapy didn't recover any faster than those who didn't. My brother is a psychiatrist and in the right of a, he's a strong Christian and in the right of, in part of several conversations we had had and then I was on the phone with him and I said, well, Jim, what you're telling me is nobody changes without the grace of God. He just laughed. It was like ABC, Gary, ABCD. Yes, that's fundamental. It's fundamental to what I do every day and how I work every day. He didn't use those words, but that was the, that was the implication of it. It is the inner working of the Holy Spirit that makes the difference. I need to change the setting on this thing, but anyway. Um, now, but what does Paul say after that? What does the work of the Holy Spirit do? Well, the Holy Spirit within us forms Christ within us. Look, because it's the empowering Holy Spirit, but then Paul prays for the indwelling Christ, that you may be strengthened in the inner man with, by, by the Holy Spirit, with power, by the a power of God, by the Holy Spirit, abundantly, according, according to the riches of God's own glory, this will be at work in you, the mighty power of God, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The Holy Spirit puts, makes, forms Christ within us. It is the Holy Spirit that gives us the faith to believe. Do you ever think about your own conversion, your own experience with the Lord? I remember so dramatically the night when I told Jesus, I wanted all of him and I want him to have all of me. It wasn't sort of like, Consciously, I didn't say, okay, I'm going to do it, and then I did it. 
It was just a response of my whole person to God. It was just, here, we didn't kneel down even and pray. We walked to the front. It wouldn't have mattered if it had been five miles. They didn't have to sing 32 verses. I knew, I knew in my soul that I wanted Jesus to have me. We just stood in front, and the preacher prayed. Actually, as soon as I stepped out of the seat, it was done. Jesus took me, and he hasn't let me go since then. He's held on to me and kept me close to him. But even the faith, the response is the work of God's Holy Spirit within, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Oh, praise the Lord. Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. Um, And it is uh, Christ dwelling within and revealing himself without. This has an impact on the way we live, all right. Christ dwelling formed within, we become Christians, little Christs, and then we reveal how he is without. That Christ may dwell in our heart, your hearts by faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love. This is, this is essential. This is part of Christ, of the work of the Holy Spirit. This is essential to the work of the Holy Spirit in Christ dwelling within. And Paul wants to make sure we grasp how essential it is. So he used these two terms, and actually the word order, Greek puts what is emphasized first, and the word order is in love, rooted and grounded. In love, rooted and grounded. One metaphor was not enough. Rooted comes from agriculture. It depicts a plant or a tree that, it, that its roots are deep down in the, in, in the soil. Have you ever tried to get a, rid of a mimosa tree? <laughs> you know, those roots go down in it. It comes out over here and has a new tree. It's everywhere. Um, don't plant them near your sewer line or you'll, 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 you'll get it, all, you'll get it all, all messed up. You know, because of, because of what it does. It's rooted. It goes down there. It's deep and embedded. This is, this is what the Holy Spirit is doing for us in forming Christ within us. He is rooting us in the mighty love of God. You know, this theme has been there from the beginning. In the opening chapter, Paul thanks, uh, thank God that, that just uh, part of the, the first statement of every spiritual blessing in Christ was that he's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love. And right there in the first chapter, Jesus is called the beloved, beloved of God, beloved by us because of the great love of God that's given to us in him. And now Paul says in Christ we're to be rooted found, and founded. Uh, this now is a building metaphor. It's a foundation metaphor. You know, in Mississippi, we have Yazoo clay. And it expands and contracts up to 40% with moisture. I've known people that go out and water their foundation. Seriously. On a regular basis because they want to keep the moisture the same. So if it doesn't rain, they water their foundation so that the clay stays the way it's, it's supposed to be. It's really funny. You see somebody, you know, somebody with a hose out there squirting it on their foundation. Um, it reminds me of this. Is, reminds me of a... Uh, Two students' children, they were off, the family was often in our house, and we had a basketball hoop. They'd often shoot basketball, and they didn't know much. They didn't have a dog at home, so we told one of them to please go out and water the dog. And uh, somebody saw him out the window spraying the dog with the hose. It was like watering a flower. And he came back in and said, well, I did it. I don't think he liked it very much. <laughs> but 
But, uh, but um, the found, found in, our, in, in our, our house was built beyond code. The foundation is thicker than it's supposed to be. I didn't know it when I bought the house, but there are 30-some pilings going down with rod in them. We still had to have $20,000 worth of foundation work done on the house. They put another 20-some pilings under there. We have a lifetime warranty on it now, fortunately, which can go on to the next. But, you know, the, the foundations, that our house physically is very well-founded. Um, on the ground there. We're to be founded, built on the solid rock of Christ and of the love of God has given us in Christ. Now, you know, of course, this is not some kind of sentimental, indulgent, uh, saccharine, sweet, superficial love. What kind of love are we talking about here? Holy love, yes, but what, what, what is... What, is, what defines love for the Christian? Yes, that's how we respond to it. I'm all for that. But how do we know what love is? Put it that way. By what Christ shows us, by what Christ has done for us. The white, hot love of God that goes to the cross. That takes on our broken, when God himself and the, the person of his son takes on our broken humanity. All of this is his love. Lives a life of obedience down here among us. Suffers. Doesn't just die, but suffers grossly and unjustly, taking the suffering of the world and the sin of the world upon himself, and then rises again. This is the, this is the white, hot love of God. And Jesus says that's to characterize us. You know, Jesus says, by this, everybody will know my disciples, you love one another. And what, As I have loved you, woo, if he just hadn't said that last part, we could have watered it down. We could have made it manageable. We could have put it in our own domain. But it's the love of the cross. And that's how the self-giving love of the cross, as I, I think I said earlier in this session, God doesn't call us to die to our self-interest, to wanting our own good. It's quite right for you to want your own good. It's quite right for you to desire eternal joy. God offers it to you. Now, he calls us to, to extend that self-love to my neighbor, to love my neighbor as myself, to want my neighbor's good as well. It's possible for my self-interest to lead me astray. But he does call me to die, die to my self-centeredness, to, my, to control of myself, to directing my own life, to putting myself above others. To that old competitive spirit that puts others down and me up. That he calls me to die to, that Christ is all in all and God is central and not me, myself. I'm not the one controlling my life. That goes all the way. I think I, did I talk about this the other day? I think I did. Goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. What happens there? Uh, somebody else was preaching and said it and said it so well around here. Maybe it was you, John. Um, I don't remember. Um, that in, in the garden, well, the, the, the essential thing there is they refuse to trust God with their own good and so put themselves in the place of God. I'm going to determine my life for myself. I'm going to go my own way, God. I'm going to determine what is good for me. I'm not going to trust you to do it. And that, of course, led to direct disobedience. Um, but here it is dying to that self, self-centeredness and having the white-hot love of Christ flow through us, and that, should show, that shows then in the way we treat one another. So in love, rooted and grounded, 
Look at what comes next. What, what comes next? In order that you might, we can translate, it's, it's really stronger than that. In order that you might be, have the strength, you might be strengthened. You can't do this on your own. It's a very strong form of the word there. In order that you might be strengthened to grasp. That word has a multitude of meanings. It can actually mean overcome. It doesn't mean that here. But to grasp, to comprehend. With whom? With all the saints. This is not something for a few people. This is not something for an elite group of the body of Christ. This is what Paul is praying for all of them. This is the privilege of the saints. You can't do it on your own, though. He prays that you might be empowered, strengthened, get, have, have the strength to grasp, to comprehend. To comprehend what? Well, the love of God, but what directly follows is the direct object of this. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? Those are all sort of, of what? Don't, don't, don't you feel something lacking there? The breadth and length and height and depth? What is the breadth and length and height and depth of this a very interestingly built tabernacle. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? Well, no, I started to say me. No, I don't want to go there, especially the, the breadth. Uh, uh, but uh, what is the breadth and length and height and depth you expect of something? But doesn't, he doesn't put any noun here. What's he talking about? The breadth and length and height and depth. Why is there no noun following it? Of Christ, yes. The love of Christ. I would say there's no noun following it because there's no noun big enough. There's no noun comprehensive enough. All of those things are true. It is the love of Christ. It is God's great plan. It is the many splendored wisdom of God. It's the inexhaustible riches of Christ. It's every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's um, God's grand design for the, re for, the, for the redemption of the cosmos. It is indeed the riches of his grace, the riches of his glory. It is all of that, and there is really no one word or term that would grasp it all. And so Paul leaves it without a term, the, rich, the, the, the breadth, the width, the length, the height, the depth. And he doesn't know what to put there because there isn't anything that will quite do it. And then, and then he says, and you'll be in strength and empowered and to know, to know what? The love of Christ, and then there's a phrase tacked on there, which surpasses knowledge, and in, in the, the word order there, it's the, and to know the surpassing knowledge love of Christ. How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? You receive it by faith, yes. Yeah. It's progressive. You know, does it, does it, how does it surpass knowledge? Why can we not understand it? It's his presence. Okay. It's, yes. Um, 
This, this really is very important. It's very important in Christian theology. You need, we need to realize that we know God, but we can never comprehend him because he's the infinite God. We could not know him at all if he had not revealed himself. But when I know him, uh, I think it was, you know, my son-in-law gave me this story, and I keep getting mixed up. I think it was Maximus the Confessor who was worshiping the Lord and praying one day, and somebody said, oh, you're, you worship God so because you know him so well. He said, no, it's because I don't know him. Now, he didn't mean he didn't know anything of God. But he had a real sense that the greatness of this God so exceeded his knowledge that he, that he was bowing before him in worship. You and I can experience the love of Christ. Yes, we can experience it. We can know it experientially. We can know it. We can receive it. We can, we can respond to it. We can grasp it somehow we, uh, intellectually. We can grasp what I just told you, that the love of Christ is defined. Ult the love of God here is ultimately defined by the grand incarnation of the Son of God and his suffering and death on our behalf. I can say those words. But to, to fully grasp what that means to fully grasp the significance of the Son of God doing that for me? Well, the fuses blow. The circuits blow. And I replace the fuses and they blow again. And they blow again. We will continue to grasp as long as we walk with the Lord and even in eternity, we will continue to grasp it better and better. But the infinite God in his infinite love is beyond my full grasping. And I'm even in, in eternity, in the new heaven and the new earth, I will not be, I will grow, I believe I, we will be growing in our understanding of it, but we'll never come to the end of our understanding of it because of the glory. And that's the glory of it. It overflows my heart. His love is so great. It goes so beyond, in Christ, so beyond what I can grasp. It's so wonderful that I'm basking and bathing in it and growing in my understanding of it as I walk with him, as it becomes a reality in my life, and I'm changed and transformed. You know, God is changing and transforming us. Some people talk about divided into three things. Orthodoxy, what we think, true doctrine. He's shaping true doctrine in our minds. Orthopraxy is right action. He's teaching us to live and do what is right. But there's another one we don't often talk about. It uses to, ortho means straight, you know, in Greek. Orthopathy is right feeling, right sensibility. Now, of course, I can't control my emotions. I can't tell myself, now, be, now is the time for joy. It's not talking about emotions on that superficial level. It's talking about sensibilities. As God shapes us, as we're, you can teach children some of these sensibilities, but God also shapes us by His Spirit so that we are disgusted at what we should be disgusted at. We despise the wickedness that we should despise. We love what we should love. We appreciate what we appreciate. And as He forms that within us, we love as He loves. And so love that begins sometimes is a duty. Some person, it's really hard to love. Well, I know God, 
I'm supposed to love them, so I'm going to treat them right by your grace. Give me the grace to treat them right. You know, if, if you haven't experienced that, well, I don't know what to say to you. <laughs> but then as, as God works within you, he forms you more and more so that love to that other person is the first response. Don't, get, don't be discouraged if it's not the first response. Now, don't be discouraged. Just obey God and ask for his grace to do it. But he forms us by the Holy Spirit and by Christ being formed within us. And as you walk with him, someday you'll say, oh, you know what? Look what God's done in me. I just love that unlovable person without even thinking about it. You know, as he works and builds it within us, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, that is um, wonderful enough. Let's make sure I haven't left anything out here. Yes. The final phrase. And that you may be filled up most translations say, with all the fullness of God. I don't, it's, they struggle with it. I'm not sure why the translations do that, because the preposition is not one that's normally used for with. It's into. It's not motion even toward. It's motion into something. It can be used to express purpose, because when you have a purpose of doing something, you move into it. But a better translation would be that we might be filled up into all the fullness of God. That makes better sense to me. I will never be filled with all of the fullness of God. God is too great. But I, am be, I can be filled up into all the fullness of God. I can enter into him and he filled me and I enter into his, his person and his reality. In, in order that we might be filled up into all the fullness of God. And God wants to do that in our lives. That, and as I, in my judgment, Paul doesn't say this here, but as our capacity grows, there is more fullness for us when we're filled up into all the fullness of God. He fills us with all of his fullness that we can take right now. In, you know, you, you do know, don't you, that if you were immediately transported to eternity in your present situation, you could not stand the presence of God. God's going to increase your capacity. <laughs> Praise the Lord. His presence is wonderful enough here. Be filled up into all the fullness of God. Now, as I was preparing these Bible studies and I came to this point, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm high in the Lord when I get here. I mean, his presence is real. I'm excited at what this is saying and what he's doing, this climactic prayer of Paul in chapters 1 to 3. And I thought to myself, is this really possible? Can I be, can Christ, can the Holy Spirit so strengthen me and Christ be formed within that I come to know the surpassing knowledge, love of Christ and be filled up into all the fullness of God? This is so much beyond what we talk about in our normal Christian, so many people, normal Christian life. Yes, I made a profession of faith. I'm saved. My sins are forgiven. I'm just living like I always live. Almost. I'm a nice person. I'm a little bit better, but I'm just concerned about things out here in the world, not paying much attention to the things of God. Um, but what is, is this really possible? Would somebody read the very next words in the next verse? 
That's far enough for right now. The very, I'm asking myself that question. Paul, of course, himself thinks it's so wonderful what he said. He began with thanksgiving. He thinks it's so wonderful that he has to conclude this third chapter with, with another doxology of praise to God. But the very next words, when I'm asking myself that question, it jumped out of the text and just hit me right between the eyes. Because the very next word you... When you say, can God do this, the very next word is our, to him who is able to do. And it's so emphatic, abundantly more and above what we could ask or think, not in the abstract out there. This is not talking about me going out in the yard and saying, God, I want an oak tree there and an oak tree appearing. It's not about some kind of magical stuff. This is according to the power that's at work in you. This is about the things I've been talking about. This is about being strengthened by the Holy Spirit. This is about Christ being formed within this is about you being rooted and grounded in love and being filled up into all the fullness of God. He is able to do that in a way that is far exceeding above all that you have imagined according to the power of Christ through the Holy Spirit, the, the crucified and risen Christ at work within you. Does it make you hungry? It makes me hung so hungry for more of God. I want to bow before him. I want to trust him. I want to obey him. I want to open myself to him that I might be continually filled up. This love formed within me, rooted and grounded, Christ formed within me. Being filled up in all the fullness of God is not just some mystical kind of feeling. Matter of fact, sometimes you might not feel much, but it's all of this happening in me and God becoming Full of a fuller reality in, in my life and me being filled up in, in, in him. Uh, it makes me so hungry before the Lord to seek him. This, yes, Paul, yes, Lord, answer Paul's prayer in me. To him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory Glory where? Glory in the church that is in the redeemed people of God that, that he has made in us. And all of this he's been doing in us, all of this he does in us is to his glory. It redounds to his glory and to his majesty and to his praise. As Paul started in the beginning, said in the first chapter, it's to the praise of the glory of his grace to what he has done. To him be glory where and when. Now and forever, really, literally, it's unto all the generations of the age of the ages. Paul doesn't have any, any bigger way to say it. To him be glory for, to every generation, to the ages of the ages. Hallelujah, because this is who he is and what he has done. Oh, I didn't leave any time for questions. I'll try to do that. I'm sure there's things that you have to say that would be good and would be a contribution. Um, let me just let you, is there any, any one question or comment somebody would like to make? Thing on your heart? You're, 
You shouldn't be surprised to see the influence of Hebrews on me. No, you're right, Teresa. I've studied that book so much, it's, it's kind of formed and shaped me. It kind of can't shake it. Not that I've ever tried to shake it. Um, thank you. Let's, yes. How, you say it scares you to think of the power. Explain that a little bit. Because left on my own, I can't handle that power. Oh, no, you're not supposed to. <laughs> left on your own, you're not, you can't. No, that, the whole point is that power handles you. You don't, you don't handle that power. You know, I, I, don't, I, I don't control the power of God in me. <laughs> no, no. You know, it's... it's it's, it's, I'm the recipient, and it handles, it handles me. I don't handle it. Let's pray. Lord, come, we come together today and make Paul's prayer for the Ephesians and the other recipients of this letter our own. We, at, we thank you for the reality that you are in our lives. And the, 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 the Ephesians were already knew you. But we pray that all that Paul asks for them will be a reality in our life, a greater and greater reality in our lives. We want to be empowered by your Spirit so that Christ is formed within and we're grounded in your inexhaustible, uncomprehensible un love in Christ that we're filled up into all the fullness of God. Make it a reality in our lives, Lord, and it will be a great blessing to us, and that's what you want it to be, eternal blessing but make it a reality in our lives unto the praise of your glory, unto the generation of the generations of the ages forever and ever. Amen.